just inside the main entrance of CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, is a white marble wall with a collection of stars etched into the stone. It is the most sacred space on our compound. Each star memorializes a life lost in the line of duty, a sacrifice to our nation. The inscription above the stars read, in honor of those members of the Central Intelligence Agency who gave their lives in the service of their country. The Book of Honor, on display in front of the memorial wall, contains the names of CIA officers who died in service. Each is written next to a gold leaf star. To protect intelligence sources and methods, some of the names must remain classified, even in death. Once a year, though, every name, even those unlisted, is read out loud in recognition at CIA's annual memorial ceremony. CIA officers are administered the oath of office in front of the memorial wall on their first day. The wall not only reminds these new officers of the inherent risks of our work, but it inspires them to continue to carry CIA's mission forward in honor of those who came before them. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest for you guys for this podcast. Uh, he spent uh, 26 years uh, at the CIA with, and retired from the Senior Intelligence Service uh, ranks. Uh, he's also the author of Clarity and Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, uh, Mark Polymeropoulos. Uh Mark, how's it going? John, thanks so much for having me. You pronounced my name correctly, so uh, that's, a, that's a good start. That's a good start, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I have great stories on this. I've had presidents, prime ministers, kings, queens mispronounce my name. So you got <laughs> you uh, a head start. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, and uh, it's it's such a uh, a like a very Greek name, you know. Like to me, when I read that, like right away, I know. Um, and uh, you know, I happen to have a couple of Greek friends uh, from New York, and um, I've also been to Greece before. So um, it, it just it's right away once I saw it, I was like, this guy is definitely from Greece. Um, <laughs> That's right. I was actually I was actually born in Greece. Uh, my dad right. was uh, my dad was Greek. My mom was American. Um, my dad was over on a Fulbright scholarship studying, uh, at, you know, uh, in the United States. And so, you know, my my mom was a nice nice girl from Long Island, and they had this kind of crazy romance. And and against probably both families' best wishes, uh, uh, they they got married. And so I actually, when my dad went back after he got his doctorate, you know, he, he was a college professor his whole life, but. In his 30s, he went back to his unit. He did his conscription in the Greek military mm. um, in his 30s. And so we were back in Greece. That's where I was born. But he tells some just pretty funny stories of what the Greek military was like in 1969. <laughs> and what part of Greece uh, were you born at? I was born in Athens um, at a okay. hospital near the uh, near the U.S. Embassy, in fact. Um, and uh, and so, you know, Greece is a, is a place that's, you know, near and dear to my heart. I, I you know, I go back. I try to go back every summer. It's been tough for the last couple of years because of COVID. But, I, you know, I love going back. I actually met my wife there, who was an agency officer as well. But she was, you know, serving overseas. And we just happened to meet on the Greek islands, the Greek island of Mykonos. And so um, it was wow. a place where I kind of grew up. I, you know, I did tons of fishing. I was a kind of a crazy spear gunner. So, you know, my dad had a, had a Zodiac boat and we'd go off on these kind of wild spear gunning adventures. And so it's just it's a place which I love and I got to got to get back there soon. And um, the, the funny part of this, too, is that there's there's been a lot of Greek Americans at CIA. And so we always joke that the uh, the agency really is run by the Greek mafia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's such an interesting place. Um, 
you know, I travel quite a bit, and I would say easily one of my favorite trips uh, of, of my lifetime was to Greece. Oh yeah, and um, you know, it a lot of, or I mean, essentially all of Western culture, uh, democracy, uh, ethics, and virtues. These ideas come from Greece. So, um, you know, it has we have a a very direct connection to the history and evolution of Greece. Uh, but it's really a fascinating place with all the history and, uh, you know, the islands are beautiful. The the food is amazing. Uh, it was really a, a great experience. No, I'm glad. I'm glad you loved it. You know, I, I you know, a couple of years ago, um, you know, so, we, you know, we've been going back and forth to the Greek islands, but, um, you know, I was at, my mom actually went on labor. It went to labor in the island of Mykonos. I was almost born like a true island kid, which would have been awesome. Yeah. But I was, I was born. She was flown by helicopter in 1969, June 24th, 1969 to, to Athens, where I was born wow. in the hospital there. But a couple of years ago, my, my son, who's in college now, but I wanted to take him to Thermopylae. And of course, you know, Thermopylae is legendary in military history. Yes. You know, for the, you know obviously the the movie 300 kind of you know dramatized it there's a great book gates of fire by stephen pressfield that really talks oh, my favorite book yep yeah. me too one of my fa- i actually used to give that book out to to foreign uh, intelligence services as a gift um because i think it's the best leadership book i made all my officers read it too um but i took him to thermopylae and it's just you know there's so much history there i mean it's, it's just mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a really a profound place and so yeah greece is a is a place near and dear. Just as an aside, um, you know, we're going to get off topic a little bit. But one of the one of the kind of cool things that's happened in my lifetime, I'm 53, is I remember the times in the 80s when there was really rampant anti-Americanism in Greece. You mm. know, there there was a you know you know kind of a hard left wing uh, uh, government. Um, you know, Greece was a member of NATO, but there was just there was it was terrible anti-Americanism. Our station chief there was assassinated. One of our naval attaches was killed as well. Wow. Really a terrible terrorist problem. And and things are different now. Um, you know, Greece is, is profoundly pro-American. And I, I went back a couple of years ago after I retired, I gave some leadership talks and I was greeted like a conquering hero. I couldn't believe it. My dad, who's, you know, in his 80s living in New Jersey, was scared to death about me going back. But it's it's a different place. And I, you know, I think um, it's, you know, as a Greek American, that's something that I'm really pleased about. Yeah. And I know there's a especially in New York, uh, there's a huge Greek community here. Um, you know, there's uh New York is kind of known for having Greek diners and things like yep. that. Um, and uh, it, it's so interesting because I actually drove to Thermopylae from Athens. You did. That's awesome. Yep. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I was expecting it to look kind of like it looked uh, in right. the days of the, the Spartans. And when I got there, I was like, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> but it, it was a great experience. Uh, you know, they have the uh, the statue of, of Leonidas is there. Yeah. So it's a cool experience for sure. And, you know, the, the interesting thing there, too, is, you know, I, I got a, I got a great picture of my son in front of the statue. But but of course, you know, if you remember, you know, if you read the book, I, everyone remembers the movie. But if you read the book, you know, there were these cliffs over, you know, overlooking the water. Well, well the water has moved miles away now. Yes. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that's different. But it's, you know, there was when we went there a couple of years ago, there was nobody there. So it's it's this kind of place where you kind of walk, walk around there and just imagine what happened. And it's just, this, you know, this profound, incredible moment in military history that that, you know, probably one of the, the greatest uh, examples of of brotherhood and sacrifice and stuff that I'm sure, you know, both of us really can relate to. Um, and so just a, just a, just a neat place. It's worth taking a drive. You know, mainland Greece is really beautiful. Everyone goes to the island, yeah. but if you travel around the mainland, it's gorgeous. Well, to be honest, my favorite, uh, I, I went to Crete and to Santorini mm-hmm. and, and, uh, but my favorite place in Greece was actually, um, 
in Delphi. Oh yeah, Gordon. And uh, I don't know if it's just a route from Thermopylae to Delphi because that's how I, I got there. Right. But the the drive was so beautiful. Like I drove through these mountain ranges and. It was just really breathtaking. Um, but yeah, Delphi was by far my favorite yep. place in Greece. And so so we did a trip. We did Delphi and we also did, uh, um, where else did we go? We went to, to shoot, one other place um, right near there. Definitely Thermopylae. Just the mainland travel was, was near. we rented a car and just drove around. That was it. Pretty easy. Yeah. You know, some small mountain passes here and there. But, you know, these villages where there's great food, people are friendly. It was, it was fun. Uh, the, and you know the the food part kind of blew me away because yeah. I, like I felt like I was eating at like nothing but five star restaurants <laughs> and it it wasn't expensive like I couldn't believe it like I, I remember thinking like uh, some of the meals I was eating in Delphi if this was if this restaurant was in Manhattan this would have oh, cost right. me three hundred bucks easy you know so and you got to go over to Astoria as well my dad used to take us there when I was little I can't I, I grew up in New Jersey. So, okay. Um, so I'm kind of an honorary-ish New Yorker. Although the funny thing is, you know, I went to college upstate New York, and all my buddies were from from New York State, mostly from you know the city or Long Island, and I was from Jersey, and they all made fun of me for being from New Jersey. Where do you think they all live right now? In New Jersey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. All right. Let's um. So let's start with uh, you know what what sort of motivated you to join. Uh, the CIA, because uh, were you the first in your family to serve in the uh, American uh, security forces? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's it's a it's it's a great question. I love talking about this because everybody has a journey. You know, that's one of the one of the really fun things about doing, you know, shows like this with you, John, today is that you can kind of dive deep into, you know, how do you get, you know, to a place like CIA or it could be in any, you know, it could be the military, it could be special operations forces, anything. Um but ultimately, you know, I think I, I, I knew I wanted to to do public service. So just my, you know, my my mom was a teacher. Um, again, my dad was a college professor. I was a super kind of middle class kid. We never had a lot of money. But I wanted to do so. I wanted to serve my country in some fashion. And um, but I think that, you know, all those trips to Greece, man, I traveled a lot. So we saw the world. So I knew there was something else, you know, something else out there. And, you know, I, I love telling the story on, on how I then I fell in love with the Middle East. Uh, ironically, my dad did a, a sabbatical in, in, in Algeria, a North African country, which when he was there was not really racked by an Islamic insurgency, which is for years was pretty terrible. And thousands of, of Algerians were killed by kind of a brutal extremist uh, group. But before that, it was it was relatively safe. So when I was 10 years old, just imagine this as, as a New Yorker, my mom drives you know, my dad's in Algiers. My mom drives me by myself at 10 to JFK airport, puts me on a flight through Paris to go to Algeria alone. Wow. So who does that? So I think my yeah. my parents' fault. I think you know. Yeah. Um. I like I've I have my I have two kids in college now. I you know I I don't think I'd allow them to do this stuff. But it's a different time. I used to jump on the train, you know, New Jersey Transit, New Brunswick, to go into the garden and watch the Rangers play when I was twelve by myself or with my buddy. Yeah. So different different kind of childhood. But so off I go to Algeria when I'm ten, and my dad and I spent a month driving. 2000 miles through the Sahara desert in a beat up old Volkswagen minibus with one of wow. his colleagues as well. So, you know, I thought I was Lawrence of Arabia. So, all the, you know, all these things are kind of building in my head that I want to do something different. I really thought the Middle East, Middle East was fascinating. And, and I was in college and I was thinking of, of military. I was thinking of, uh, of, of, you know, FBI, DEA or, or CIA. And I just probably read, uh, you know, a Tom Clancy book or two. And, um, I applied to CIA when I was at Cornell University. That's where I, where I went to school. And, you know, recruiters were on campus. There was at the, at the career center. It was funny when I when I went for my interview, um, I was like, there's a, there's a guy with a security guy with an earpiece outside 
<laughs> the uh, the interview room, and I was like, "What the hell is this?" Yeah. It turns out there was protests against the agency on campus, so I think they're. Mm. But you know, I applied and I got in. It took me a long time to get cleared because I'd spent so much time. I was born overseas, but it was the only job I ever had. Um, so I, you know, I, right out of school, off I went, and uh, you know, it was, it was a heck of a ride. But you know, I, I, it, everyone has kind of this unique, strange journey, and it just seemed like the right thing to do. It was I wanted to live overseas. I loved the Middle East. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do public service. I wanted to serve my country. So it just kind of fell into my lap. So you were there for, uh, 26 years. Right. Um, the majority of that was spent as a, a field officer, right. but you started as an analyst. Uh, can you talk about sure. your start and then, you know, how you transitioned into a, a different role? So, so I started off as an analyst and I, I'd gone to school and I might specialize in, in Middle East studies. So, um, uh, it was, it was the job I interviewed for. And so I, I, I went in and, and was January 3rd, 1993, um, was my first day, which, which was ironic. That was the day that, uh, I think it was the day or one of the first days in which, um, a terrorist, uh, Mir, uh, uh, Kanzi, um, out, you know, it was Pakistani terrorist killed a couple of CIA officers right outside the CIA headquarters at Langley. Um, so that was kind of the first experience with, with terrorism it was pretty, pretty dramatic, but, but ultimately I, you know, I, I joined and I, I, the first account I had was amazingly enough, Afghanistan. So between 1993, 94, 95, I was deeply immersed in, in, in kind of the Afghan political and military scene, which actually served me really well later on when I was a case officer, I went and served in Afghanistan several times. Um, but, but this was, uh, you know, it was, it was fascinating. You know, we were, we were writing papers on, a young extremist Saudi named Osama bin Laden um, was, you know, who had motivated 10,000 Af- we call them the Afghan Arabs. These were Arab nationals who came and fought against the Soviet Union and during the uh, uh, the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. So um, I did this for a while, but then, then I started, you know, I had the opportunity to travel a couple times. And in one case, I went to the Middle East for three months. And right then I knew I said, look, I want to be a case officer, an operations officer, which is a dramatically different job. You know, as an analyst, you're writing papers, you're briefing policymakers, but your career is in the United States as an operations officer. You know, you're the one who are spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting and handling spies, you know, agents. And so um, I wanted to do that. And I went, ironically, my boss at the time and, you know, a lot of people have different views on him. He always treated me well. But I went to him, which is really my immediate boss. His name was John Brennan, uh, who, of course, later on became the CIA director. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, look, I would think I want to be a case officer. Can I make the switch over to the director of operations? It's not it's not easy, but it's not unheard of. And so I applied for the, you know, for the training program, um, uh, for the case officer program. I was accepted. And then uh, and then I switched over and then I you know, I ended up doing seven tours overseas, spent the majority of the time in the Middle East, almost three years in the war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan and some other fun spots. And um, but, I, you know, I, I the, the time as an analyst helped me because ultimately it taught me kind of how to write which is really important because as a case officer, you know, you're doing all this stuff, but you have to write it up. You got to write cables. You got to write, you have to, you have to write up your assessment of prospective spies um, or the operational meeting or the intelligence. And so those first couple of years as an analyst actually did help me quite a bit. And I still have a ton of friends from that time. And um, it just, it just wasn't the right career track for me. And fortunately the agency allowed me to switch over and, uh, and, uh, and I love the job of, of a case officer because there's, you know, no, there's nothing like having that, you know, responsibility of, of handling um, an, an asset, an agent um, who, you know, was risking his or her life for the United States. So working, uh, you know, as a case officer uh, in a place like Afghanistan or Iraq, 
is it is it a similar type of job working in a war zone like that versus working in you know whatever country right uh, is, is it similar or is it uh, vastly different john what, what a great question i mean it, it is actually so so the the fundamentals are going to be similar in the sense that we need to um you know collect intelligence um you know uh, uh on a certain uh, you know, subject country, um, you know, in the case of Afghanistan and, and Iraq, in Iraq, it was much more for me, much more against the regime of Saddam Hussein. Um, you know, I, I went in with the, you know, in, in literally with, with, uh, with JSOC, um, as a case officer, kind of, a, uh, you know, seconded to them, um, for the high value target hunt against Iraq regime officials. This was in, in 2003. So that was kind of specific, but it's, it's kind of manhunting. Uh, and then in Afghanistan, it was, it was against the, the Taliban and Al Qaeda again, manhunting. So it's different in a couple reasons. One is of course, there's a physical safety aspect that's, that's radically different. And so, you know, um, the normal job of a, of a CIA case officer is you're going out in the streets of a foreign country alone and you're doing something called a surveillance detection route, which is, you know, it could be a couple hours. It could be, you know, eight, 10 hours with changing with, you know, use of disguise or jumping out of a car, but it's, the whole idea is to meet your your agent securely, um, uh, and you do that alone, kind of when you're when you're assigned to kind of a, a you know an embassy environment. And the war zones is different. We had security teams with us, um, you know, much more of a kind of a physical threat. Uh, and 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 generally, as I as I mentioned, the, the the intelligence you collected was much more tactical in nature, particularly when it's you know again when I talk about manhunting, which is we got very good at. Um, so it's, you know, we'd recruit agents who would provide us information on, on uh, you know, hunting individuals. Um, and then we'd pass it off to, you know, uh, you know, to, to, to the military or to kind of other units for sometimes for kind of kinetic activities, sometimes capture operations, but um, much more fast paced. I remember my times in, in Iraq, not showering for six weeks and, and being up for, you know, days on end. Um, family's obviously not with you. And there's not as much, there's no real cover issues there i'm not posing as something else so i you know i'm a clearly i'm a i'm not a member of seal team six um uh, those those you know my <laughs> my friends from when i was when i was with them in iraq would laugh um but but i had a very unique role which was to you know gather intelligence to to help prosecute their missions and so uh, you know, the, the one thing that i would say is that it's, it can be enormously rewarding because intelligence operations traditional ones sometimes takes months if not years to recruit somebody over multiple meetings and you're trying to get into their head and, you know, in the war zone is totally different, uh, much more fast paced. Um, so it's high risk in terms of sometimes physical threat, but high reward in terms of for taking bad guys off the battlefield. And so just different. And look, look later, you know, it's all part of your, the arrows in your quiver. You, you in, in a, a CIA officer, a CIA case officer really worth their salt will have done lots of different things. They'll do war zones. Then they'll go do traditional embassy environments. Maybe they'll do a high, counterintelligence threat environment like a Moscow or a Beijing. And so it's just a, it's a it's a different experience, but it's kind of part of your whole whole career. And I think it's really important to do, you know, these these kind of different, you know, varied, uh, uh, you know, AOs. And so just to just to kind of round yourself out as an officer, because if you're going to manage people later on, you got to have kind of walk the walk and talk the talk. And so um, and that's what I did. I kind of had a, a varied career over lots of different environments. So when the uh, the towers fell in 2001 and then uh, there was a, a, a response uh, in Afghanistan, right. the first Americans in were uh, CIA officers. That's right, October. Yeah, and then f followed 
a short time later by special forces and then other uh, special operations units. Um, but the first guys in were CIA guys. Right. Um, did you know any of the, the first guys who went in there? Oh, sure. I knew them very well. Look, so, you know, after, after, you know, we always talked about, you know, um, September 12th as being kind of this critical day in the agency's history. Um, because that's when, when everything changed. And so everybody signed up, everyone wanted to be on those new teams. Um, I knew, I knew just about everybody who, who went in. Some of them were, you know, were friends and, and, and colleagues and, you know, they really, they did incredible work. I mean, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. And, and of course, this is not just based in a vacuum. The agency had established relationships with, with different Afghan groups. So that's one of the, one of the things talk about you know, deployments. Well, CIA is always deployed. Um, so we, we, we had contact with Afghan resistance groups um, before 9-11. And so we were able to capitalize on that. But the folks who went in, my, my colleagues, they did incredible work. Um, I, I first made it there in, I think, February or March of 02. Um, but this is after, you know, everyone was kind of screaming and begging to get there. And I certainly was one of them. Just as, a, as an aside, and I got to be careful on how I say this, I was actually uh, uh, working in New York for the U.S. government on 9-11. Um, we actually weren't there that day. Uh, we, were, we were on the Greek islands. We were on vacation. Um, and of course, I remember my father calling me, you know, uh, you know, nearly hysterical, crying. Um, uh, and, and we made it on one of the first aircraft uh, uh, back as, as, as planes from Europe were coming back in. Um, I made it back and I was, I, I, I was assigned to, and, and I think, you know, these are things I can't talk about. You know, there's something called the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is this multi-agency effort that exists in many U.S. cities and there are agency, there's an agency presence there. And so I was, I was on the JTTF um, assigned there, um, at, you know, after 9-11. And I, I, this is about maybe a week after um, the towers fell. I remember walking through the rubble um, and it's still burning and the smoke is everywhere and the, the smell yep. is incredible. And, um, and just, you know, and, and looking over at, at World Trade Center 5, which is where my daughter's daycare center was. So she would have been in that daycare center that day. Wow. And so just, you know, and, and again, everyone's lives changed after that. Um, I don't think that I, I don't think I did anything in my career, um, save maybe, uh, you know, a, a, an assignment or two that was not involved with counterterrorism after that. And uh, and there, there's there, you know, there's there's lots of talk now. Obviously, there was a kind of a botched withdrawal um, from Afghanistan and people have kind of very, uh, I think, strong views on, on 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 the war in Afghanistan. Maybe it went too too long and, and you know, we engage in nation building. But I think for a lot of us, especially involved in counterterrorism efforts, I have a lot of pride in what we did there. Um, I went back. I served as a base chief in eastern Afghanistan, one of our paramilitary bases for a year, 2011, 2012 in eastern Afghanistan. And and look, we took a lot of bad guys off the battlefield. And I, I know that the things that my team did save uh, the lives of U.S. soldiers. And so I have an incredible pride in, in everything we did in that country. And, you know, history will, I guess, will will kind of be the ultimate judge on this. But um, I know a lot of us really do walk tall after after what we did there. And that's not to say we didn't take to stay too long. And, 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 and you know, uh, there's a lot of things that, that perhaps went wrong there. But I certainly have a lot of pride in uh, in serving in, uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, 9-11, one of the things that I always remember is how it smelled, you know? Yep. Um, and, uh, I, I think I was in eighth grade that at the time. Right. Um, so I remember like the teachers kind of dramatic, the teacher came running in and was, you know, America's under attack. And, 
she really did the wrong thing in my opinion because it kind of scared everybody. But right. um, yeah, the, the one thing about that day I'll never forget is is how it smelled and um, just the, the smoke that lingered. I think it was for weeks uh, after. It was weeks. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And John, let me tell you a cool story. So I was living, you know, again, we were living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and and before any of your listeners say, "Oh my God," you know, what are they paying people there? I actually. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of us, we had we had our uh, our housing subsidized, so um, <laughs> trust me, on a on a, on a GS12 uh, salary, I, I couldn't afford to live on. on I think we're at 80th in New York, but um, our little apartment up there, we had some we had some help from uh, from the USG. But but one of the, one of the really cool things I, I remember, and and this is something that that you know, got, you know, this is a whole separate conversation, but I wish it would exist today. Is the feeling in New York, and you must maybe you remember this, was of unity after that. And oh yeah, uh, around the corner from us, there was this Egyptian dude. And he ran a pizza parlor there. Only in New York City can this Egyptian, you know, run a great New York City pizza stand or a pizza, you know, a pizza parlor. And we went in there and he had hung up an American flag and a Muslim. And so I think he he was he was he was a little bit nervous on how people would react. And to the contrary, the neighborhood totally embraced him. And there was this incredible feeling of unity. And 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 I remember even uh, uh, George W. Bush in, in a lot of his speeches after that talked about this. This is not a war on Islam. This is. Obviously, we're going to go out and hunt down and kill everybody involved in this, and and we I think to, to a large extent we did, but there was a, there was a feeling of unity that I that I that I that doesn't exist now I think in our country, but but boy it really did there. And you know, look, I grew up in Jersey, uh, I, you know, I, I lived in New York City obviously for a couple of years. Uh, my daughter was born in Mount Sinai, and you know, we always consider ourselves New Yorkers. I still you know I, I still I I love the city and and going back. It was a really special time because my daughter was born, but really a special time too because we were there during a tragic day, but then a day that saw just this incredible unity amongst amongst New Yorkers and I, and I, I will cherish that, you know, for as long as I live. Yeah, it it, it was a uh, a feeling of unity and uh you know, I think the the neighborhood uh where I grew up it was in a small area. I think thirty plus people died in the towers, and I knew some of them. Wow! Um, and even at the the local church, I think it's still standing to this day. There's a uh, a piece of the steel from the towers that's shaped in a, like a cross, and they donated it to the church. So yep. the, the the church has like a memorial in the yard, and a, and the the steel from the towers there. So. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There was a huge sense of unity. Uh, I think people were very proud to be Americans. Um, and, and it's so different today, uh, you know, just 20 years later. Yep. And it's kind of crazy, you know, how fractured people are and can't even talk. Uh, you, or you, you, if you have a different opinion, then you're, you're labeled something and um, there isn't much like room for we disagree, but you know, let's go to lunch after kind of, kind of thing, you know? That's right. I agree. And so that, that's what, and that's, that, you know, I, I haven't lived in New York, you know, I'm obviously not living in, you know, I live in the DC area now, but, um, you know, that, that's one of the magic, magic parts of, of New York city. It is this giant melting pot. Um, and yeah. you just got to kind of embrace that. And just as you said, you know, you love Greek food. Well, you know, I mean, there's, there's not a, there's not an ethnic, uh, uh restaurant that I would not go to right now. I mean, I, there's the, 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 the food scene in New York city, is unbelievable, and so yeah. I, I love that. Love that part of it. It's a pretty, pretty special place, and you know, and so you know, each each year we go back over Christmas. You know, I'll, I'll take my family up for a couple of days. We'll go to a Rangers game. I, I certainly, when I was paying twelve bucks for blue seats at Madison Square Garden, it's not like that now. 
Oh yeah, it's it's insane. Yeah, you, you can't get in the garden without spending you know two hundred bucks. Right. Um. Okay, so in your book, uh, you know, you speak about your experience working counterterrorism, uh, particularly in the Middle East. Yep. And then you also speak about the effectiveness of Middle Eastern CIA officers, and you include women in uh, that that right. part of the book. Uh, did the understanding of how effective the Middle Eastern officers and particularly the women, uh, did that understanding on how effective they would become after 9-11 or, or was this thought to be this good before 9-11? Well, look, I mean, I, 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 the reason why I mentioned that in the book is, you know, there's all this, you know, so there's all this controversy now about wokeness. And, you know, so U.S. military is accused of being woke and the CIA puts out a video and they, you know, they, they talk. And so. What, what I, the reason why I wanted to kind of dispel all this stuff is is one of the things that I always talk about as a as an operational manager is these approached espionage operations. Okay, we need to put the best athlete uh, out on here. And a lot of times, what you do as a CIA officer is you're out in the streets and you want to look invisible. So so and so so in the Middle East where um, there is there is a lot of chauvinism, you know, a lot of it's a it's a, it's a you know misogyny. And so so if I if we had if we if we were running an extremely sensitive agent, someone is a foreigner who's decided to betray their country, they're spying for the United States, we got to meet them on the street. Well, in the Middle East, particularly, our female operations officers would be able to wear a full burqa. They'd be fully covered. They go out in surveillance detection. They are totally invisible. Right. They would have this incredible ability to blend in. And guess what? That's the best athlete for this operation. You know, it might not be my other one of my officers who is a former SEAL with arm sleeves. With all tatted up, because that might be might be a little more uh, uh, conspicuous. And right. and one of the th- so so and, and one of the things as well is, and I found it particularly true in the Middle East, is that um, the, a Middle East man has this reverence for one person in his life. It's not his wife; it's his mom. That's it's been written about. You know, there's there's studies on this, or psychological studies. So, if our female officers can have that kind of rapport um, with an agent, with an Arab male agent. They're going to actually listen and take directions much better. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that I would kind of dive into. And, you know, I'm putting the best athlete out in the street to run this operation. And so and the, and the reason why I mentioned that with female officers is, is this idea of, oh, my God, can, can a female officer operate in Saudi Arabia? Well, the answer is sure. You know, the Saudis might treat women like second class citizens, and that's awful. But guess what we're going to do as an espionage organization? We're going to take advantage of that. Right. Um, and, and and I tell a story in the book, and this is one of my favorite stories. So we had a male case officer. He's out on a surveillance detection route. I'm sorry. We had a female case officer. She's out on a surveillance detection route. She, for whatever reason, gets spotted by the local security service. And we're running an agent. And then we get a report saying that we've spotted this female you know, American embassy employee um, we think she's on an operational act. And then the, right after that is let's put surveillance on her husband who also worked at the embassy because in their minds, they thought, well, a girl can't be a spy. And we're sitting back right. at the CIA station, just laughing our asses off saying, are you yeah. kidding me? And so, you know, and, 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 and so she's still clean. Meanwhile, the, the husband, the male case officer is like, Hey, what the hell? I didn't do anything wrong. And now I got surveillance all the time. Um, so it's just, it's just this idea that, you know, you put the best athlete out on the street. And I just, I wanted to kind of make that point. Um, and, um, and just to try to dispel some of the other, you know, things about, about kind of, I'll I'll leave it to all the people arguing about cultural stuff in terms of who's woke or not. But all, but my point is that, that, that we need a diverse workforce because my, my role as a CIA manager is to have my officers on the street and not get caught. 
And sometimes not getting caught means we have to have different it, you know, ethnic groups, sexes, races, everything, religions. I, I'll, I'll take I'll take anybody in my repertoire, you know, in my stable of officers who, who ain't going to get caught. Um, and that's that's the kind of ethnic. That's the, that's why I say we need a diverse workforce. That's why, um, uh, because, you know, again, the role of CIA is to operate clandestinely overseas. And if we want right. to do that, um, maybe not everyone's got to look like me. Right. And uh, I, I think. In the early days of the Iraq War, uh, there was a a lack of intelligence. Um, the insurgency had just started. They weren't exactly sure yet who was doing what. Um, but the 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 operations didn't start fully kicking in, or at least going after the insurgency, uh, until they built cell phone towers and they were able to get intelligence because you know a, a, a guy. Uh, you know, CIA officer or special operations guy undercover in Baghdad, blonde hair, blue eyes, he kind of sticks out, right? Just a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so you're absolutely right about that. Uh, you know, just having the, that diverse set of uh, people to, to work these different roles, you know? So, you know, one of the things that, at the end of my career at CIA, when I got, I was, I was ended up being pretty senior in the organization is when I go talk to whether it's colleges, uh, college kids, or, or or people kind of just walking in the door, um, and and but particularly as we're trying to recruit at colleges, and so yes, we want to go to historically black colleges. Yes, we want to go to colleges and we want to recruit female you know candidates because of this reason. I want a diverse workforce. I don't want a whole bunch of white dudes. Sorry, and I, and I say this with kind of complete putting aside any anything to do with kind of politics or anything like that again you want to win on the street you, you got it you know and, and and one of the things i remember in new york city there was uh sometimes we would uh we would we would run some uh field exercises um practice for lack of a better term with with the fbi and the fbi surveillance teams um are extraordinary because guess what they look you're going down the street and some there's some rasta dude in the side of the road playing a guitar well guess what that's 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 an FBI surveillance or yeah. you go around the corner and look like there's some homeless dude. That's an FBI surveillance or there's someone walking, you know, in a, in a three piece suit who looks like he's coming out of Wall Street or she, you know, so that, you know, again, so so as as we just kind of run these operations and have to understand what we got to do, that's why we need a diverse workforce. And the agency's gotten better at that. Still not perfect, um, but better. And but when I would go and I'd talk to all these different kind of problem, you can call them affinity. Uh, uh, affinity groups, whatever it is. I'm like, yes, we want you to come work for the United States government. And uh, and this is the reason why, because you're going to win. You're going get to get out in the street and win. Um, and, and I, you know, we got a wild ways to go, but uh, I think people understand that concept. Uh, in the same section of the book, uh, you also mentioned Gina Haspel, who uh, rose through the ranks at the CIA to become the director. Uh, and I believe she was the first director in the history of the agency. Right. Uh, first female director, sorry. Um, did you have a relationship with her? And could you also talk about what her reputation was like at CIA? So, yeah, sure. I, I, I knew I knew uh, uh, Gina Haspel. You know, she's the director. I briefed her, you know, many times. Um, incidentally, after after Gina, we had then, then had our first operations chief. So you have the director of the CIA and then you have the deputy director of operations. That's the chief spy. Um, and, and, and under Gina, we had a female officer uh, in that role as well. And so 
so you know one of the things about 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 CIA though I will say so these are these are groundbreaking achievements we need that um, that said uh, just because she was female doesn't mean people didn't have criticism of her and so I think times she could micromanage a little too much for my liking um, uh, and and but that was just her that was kind of her style and so uh, one of the things that CIA is it, and, and I and I you know, so if if you're good you're good and no one cares where you went to school and no one cares what you look like. Um, and so ultimately I thought that, uh, it'll, this will get into politics a little bit, but ultimately she had a very difficult job working for in the Trump administration, particularly the end when she was on the kind of perpetual threat of getting fired. And so, um, you know, history will judge her, you know, whether she kind of stood up uh, for the agency well enough or not. Um, but ultimately she was a trailblazer and, uh, and, and uh, and so now, you know, uh, you know, the, the sky's the limit. Um, I think we'll, you know, we'll, certainly we'll see, you know, future, um, you know, uh, female directors, female deputy director of operations. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, you know, she's she wasn't my favorite director because I got to say my favorite director has to be George Tennant because why? He was Greek. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, OK, so you've. Uh spent time in Afghanistan, uh, I think multiple tours there. Uh, you mentioned that you were there as a chief. Uh, were you also there as a sort of uh, ops guy? Yep. So I was there. So my first time there was in, uh, uh, well, as I said, February, March of 02 um, in Kandahar, as just as a regular case officer. That was super early on, of course. Um, and and I was there just for about a month, a um, little under that. Um, uh, or we were rotating uh, teams in and out very quickly. And then I went back there for an entire year, 2011 to 2012, as a as the chief of a base, and we had a paramilitary base in long in, in literally on the Pak Afghan border in Paktika province. Our our only goal was to hunt Al Qaeda and the Taliban. Um, Twenty Americans and a thousand Afghan Indig personnel, and you know I, I'll never forget flying in there. This is actually one of the reasons. You know, again, this was I started thinking about leadership a lot um, as uh, 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 during that year because I remember flying in. And all of our infills were, of course, at night because we get, you know, we're getting rocketed by, you know, there, the, there was a plethora of 107 millimeter rockets that Al Qaeda and the Taliban had. So they would just pound our base, you know, hourly, if certainly daily, but if not hourly. So so our, our any kind any kind of movement of, of people or material has got to be done at night. So, you know, it's midnight infill. We're flying in, um, you know, the pilots who are these are kind of the baddest pilots on the planet. These are these are some of the retired folks from from, you know, uh, U.S. military special operations. Um, and, and I remember hovering in this mountain pass and I said, you know, on comms, I said, what's going on? They said, base is getting rocketed now. We just got to hold off a little bit. And I was thinking to myself, what in the F have I gotten myself into? And I remember, <laughs> I remember landing and, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, an SUV comes, comes out of, out of the base gate, comes, grabs me. They stick me in there and back, you know, and we go again to get under a secure, a more secure facility. And a really good friend of mine, actually, um, who I, who I had served with in, in, in Iraq, was the was the base chief and he was leading he was leaving so we had an overlap of a couple of days but he has this huge smile on my face and he saw because my eyes were bugged out like what the hell have I gotten myself into, and again twenty Americans for a year, um, with the sole goal of hunting Al Qaeda and the Taliban and a, and a thousand really brave Afghan dudes who uh, who I I always called one of the fight, finest fighting forces in eastern Afghanistan eastern Afghanistan I mean you know we went home after a year they were there forever. And uh, right. it was an incredible year. I, I learned so much about myself. Um, uh, we did tremendous damage to the enemy. We killed a lot of bad guys. And uh, and I have a whole bunch of stories in the, in the book about that, particularly 
um, that we, we had hunted and tracked down and, and we called in an airstrike on a Taliban member who had killed two CIA officers several, several years earlier. And I remember we, you know, not kind of against the, I never wrote this up or anything and against the rules or whatever. I, we grabbed a sat phone, um, after we, uh, completed this operation and we called the widow in Fort Bragg and told her that we'd avenge the death of her husband, one of the, one of the officers. So just an amazing wow. time. And, you know, you do something like that, you, you change your, you change forever and everything is, is, you know, different perspective. And I was, I was like, I was, it felt like I was on the moon for a year. Um, and then, you know, of course the adjustment back to real world is tough, but an incredible time, really proud of what we did. And, 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 you know, this, this goes again to, you know, this, this kind of debacle that occurred with the, with U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan when leaving leaving our Afghan partners behind. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not alive today. I mean, these are these are Afghans who, you know, were in firefights, you know, alongside us. And I mean, to be honest, they saved, you know, my bacon numerous times. Um, I think that we had uh, five of our Afghan indigenous were killed when I was there. So I'd go talk to the families, obviously provide them death benefits and things like that. But it was really, really, uh, you know, the our Afghan allies were pretty special. And and, I, you know, we got a lot of them out, but there's still a lot left behind. And I think that that really obviously you saw the kind of the outpouring um, from uh, from the kind of the, the military and intelligence communities, retired folks who wanted to help get 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 the Afghan partners out because yeah. they were there for us. Um, I'll never forget them. And uh, the commander of our unit um, was killed when I was there. And that was pretty traumatic. I remember sitting with him, you know, the night before having having a cup of tea and. He, in the morning, he called me up. He said, "Hey, Mark, you know these the, the Afghans were rolling out just by themselves and hit an IED, and he died." And I was, I was, that was pretty, pretty terrible. Yeah, I remember uh, when the uh, the exfil and sort of evacuation was taking place uh, last summer. Um, a lot of people were bad mouthing the Afghans uh, because a, a lot fled from wherever they were at trying to get into the city to potentially get out the country. Right. And um, I remember seeing a lot of, uh, I think mostly on social media, but and maybe some you know news pundits or whatever, but a lot of people were bashing the Afghans who were running from the Taliban and, and saying, oh, you know, that they should defend their own country and, and things like that. But uh, when you look at the numbers, uh, 65 Yep. I'm sorry, 69,000 military and police died fighting right. the Taliban, yep. and that's just the last 20 years. Um, and that's not, and I'm, I'm sure those numbers are probably not 100% accurate. I would imagine they're higher. Um, and that's not counting civilians who were killed in a, a brutal way over, you know, nothing, or, you know, or what we would perceive as nothing in the West. Um and I just remember thinking, like, that's that's so unfair to these people who have sacrificed everything to to try and liberate their homeland, uh, but weren't able to do so. You know, John, I, I agree with you. I thought it was total bullshit for a couple of reasons. First of all, that figure you cited, you said it. I was going to say it right afterwards. That's a staggering amount. Yeah, a lot of Afghan military and police gave their lives. But the other part of it too is, um, uh, you know, at the end. Like so I, I was always of the of the mindset and I went on every I went on MSNBC, CNN and Fox nonstop during this saying that, you know, we should have left a residual force of, of, of maybe one or two thousand, you know, uh, agency, intel and special operations um, forces uh, 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 keep the embassy open um, and still prop up the Afghan government because the alternative. Look what happened. Right. Um, but but, you know, uh, when we end up 
you know, in essence, gaslighting the Afghans. And this is, you know, our government did this. So we're talking, you know, the Afghans are survivors. And, you know, one of the things, let me go back to when I first started as an agency analyst on Afghanistan in 1993. Every government trans- transition in Afghanistan, the most violent country on the planet, actually has been done with, with surrender. And so ultimately the Afghans, you know, they, they look to the United States uh, and, and of course it's a corrupt, wildly corrupt country. Um, but they look to the U.S. and when the U.S. says, we're, we're abandoning you, guess what they're going to do? Well, the Taliban's going to be in power. They're going to switch sides. It's what right. Afghans always do. And I'll never forget we had a <laughs> there was an Afghan tribal leader, you know, where I was in Paktika province. And I, you know, I've, I sat down and had, you know, tea and goat with them about a billion times over over that year because I just found them fascinating. And I learned so much about the country and the culture. But, you know, he, he said he goes, you know, when when. He said, when I was a, he said, I was a, I was a communist under the Najibullah regime. That's that's you know, that's the, the old Soviet, pro-Soviet um, uh, uh, Afghan regime um, uh, when when the Soviet Union invaded. So he goes, I was a communist then. But then when the Mujahideen kind of rose up in arms, I became a Mujahideen. And he said, when the, then when the Taliban came into power, um, uh, I joined the Taliban and now you guys come. And so I'm with you now. And when you right. leave, I'll join whoever's in power. You know, they're survivors. And, and, you know, in, in some level, I can't blame them for that. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if you're there and you know that the the foreign military and, or force that's there is eventually going to leave, then and, and you switching sides would be acceptable. That's a, a much better option than being executed along that's with right. your family. You right. know, so um, now now one of the things I'll, let me just kind of conclude this little segment here is. I'll never forget watching the fall of, of Kabul now, um, and especially the scenes outside uh, HKIA, Hamid Karzai Airport. Um, there were, i got to be careful when I say this, there were special units with, with, with specific uniforms. They called them the Tiger Stripes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, they were there to the bitter end, um, helping, uh, you know, helping with the withdrawal. And so the, the units associated with the intelligence community and the U.S. special operations community, those Afghan units you know, kicked ass till the bitter end. Um, and I think a lot of us have a lot of pride because, you know, these were our boys, um, and, and they, they saved our bacon and, and, uh, and, uh, but they, they fought valiantly till the very end. And so that's, that, that to me was, was, uh, was pretty damn awesome. Yeah. I, I think, um, I don't remember if there was some video showing some Afghan special ops units yep. who were getting ready and. Uh, you see them in all their kit, and they look like U.S. special ops. <laughs> well, there's a reason they were, you know, they we, we kitted them out. We they they we fought with them for for two decades, but they're yeah. damn good. Right. I, you know, uh, you know, uh, the commander of uh, of ISAF, John Allen, who's a four star. Um, he, uh, I remember, he came to to my base one time. We had a wild firefight across the border, and he was wondering who, what the hell this crazy kind of CIA team was doing. And he came, and when he came up, you know, he flew in by helicopter and. And, uh, you know, one of the cool things about CIA is I'm a, I'm a base chief. Um, I called to our station chief in Kabul. I said, hey, the, the head of all U.S., you know, all U.S. military force Afghanistan is coming to see me. And he might not be too happy because we're having all these cross-border skirmishes. Um, and our chief of station said, you got this, Mark. You handle it. So, again, that's one of the things that, you know, they give us a lot of, a lot of leeway as, a, as, a, as, as young kind of leadership positions. But I remember talking to John Allen. He came and he said, you know, I explained to him what happened. We had ISR video. There was a wild cross-border incident. Governor Pakistan was upset and who cares. But but ultimately, I said to him, I said, well, you know, we have the finest fighting force in eastern Afghanistan. And he's looking around. He said, well, where are the Americans here? And I said, exactly. Our Afghan indige. Right. And, uh, he kind of looked at me and, uh, and, and, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but but I believed it. 
Um, because again, they, you know, these units never left. U.S. units rotate through. These guys never left. They spent, you know, they started off in sandals uh, and, an, and an FDNY baseball hat given to them by the first teams of CI officers who came in, and then they, in the end, they're all kitted out and they look like you know, SEAL Team Six or Delta, um, and they're really damn good. Yeah, and it's funny. Uh, some of my friends uh, were among the first special forces teams to train uh, some Afghan units and also uh, in Iraq, the Iraqi counterterrorism right. forces. Um, and uh, during the fight with ISIS, some of the guys that they trained and worked with were killed, um, you know, fighting ISIS in Baghdad. Uh, no, not Baghdad. I think Mosul and, and uh, areas closer to Syria. So, uh, and then... Uh, you know, we we made like a couple of tribute posts and posted online and and gathered some funds to send to the families of the men, the Iraqis uh, who were killed, and uh, and I remember people criticizing some of the images. Where one of the guys who died was a sniper, and uh, there's a there was an image of him uh, on a rooftop with his rifle. The barrel was on the uh, the roof, and some guy was criticizing him for for doing that. And uh, and then one of my buddies who actually knew him, uh, knew the guy, who, the sniper who died, he wrote, like, these guys have been fighting nonstop right. since the beginning of this yeah. war. Like, we, you know, we're special ops, we're Americans, we have the best training, blah, 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 but we go home at some point. Th these guys lived this for the last, you know, 14 years straight, no breaks, or, or very little breaks, you know, and, so. And one other part of that, too, is their families are at risk, too. I mean, there's right. so much involved in this. And so, you know, and... You know, one of the things that that I loved about, you know, being an intelligence officer um, is the relationship you build with, you know, with with the people we work with. Um, pretty extraordinary. And a lot of them are, you know, uh, you know, are, are brave beyond, you know, beyond belief because their families, their tribes are at risk. Um, and so, I, again, and this goes to just in, in the end about the, the, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is, you know, we you know, the, the I think a lot of us see our Afghan, you know, brothers who are there just like we would if we were in a, you know, U.S. unit. So so I think that, you know, when we're talking about, you know, our Afghan partners. I, I think about my career at CIA. I could replace an Afghan with, with Iraqis, Syrians, Yemenis, Somalis, you know, any of these indigenous forces that we we have relationships with. And we're in some pretty unique situations. And so, you know, that one of the one of the things that I enjoyed most about uh, being a CIA officer was to have those relationships um, and to help people who are kind of fighting for their countries. Um, but on the other side, you know, as is often the case, you know, the, the U.S. does leave um, these conflicts. And sometimes we, we leave the, the folks that we spent years with to, to fend for themselves. And so that was always kind of hard to take as well. And there, there's there's so many CIA officers I know who, you know, have that kind of that feeling that that pit in their stomach um, that a lot of the a lot of the folks we kind of work with over the years in some of these really tough places um, that that not that the U.S. abandoned them, because, you know, sometimes you got to take the training wheels off. Um, but still, you kind of wonder what happened to them um, after uh, after all the time we worked together. And it's just one of those things. It's a personal business. And, it, you know, we talked about before on on why I, why I wanted to switch over from at, uh, being an analyst to being an, an ops officer. But but ultimately, it's about people and about relationships and and uh, and that's you know that's that was to me kind of one of the greatest things about the job is forming these relationships with people from other countries who kind of believe in America, believe in the agency, and believe that we could kind of help them, um, uh, you know, make their countries better. And uh, and that to me is you know I will always cherish that. Uh, 
you know, I'm sure you've lost uh, colleagues and friends uh, at CIA, but and if you can't talk about this, it's fine. But sure. uh, have you had experiences where you've lost, you know, folks that you were working with who were not American? Uh, so both. So, you know, so I've, I've had, you know, officers who I work with, you know, American uh, agency officers, you know, who, who died. And, you know, the worst experience of my career was, you know, what happened in coast Afghanistan on December 30th, 2009. when seven of my colleagues were, were killed. That was awful. Yeah, I was involved in that operation, uh, and uh, and you know that's something that I'll take to my grave. That um, seven of our my colleagues, uh, including one who I was really directly responsible for, um, died, and then and then I lost agents along the way as well, and that's that's terrible too. I, I you know I talk about in the book on uh, uh, an Iraqi a- agent asset um, who I was you know we were, I was I was sent to Iraq um, in late uh, in December 2002 before the invasion. Um, living in the mountains with the Kurds, it was agency, a joint agency, and then a 10th group special forces team. And so we were up there and, we, you know, we had recruited an Iraqi and he was crossing enemy lines to give us order of battle, you know, the, the, the military disposition of Iraqi forces. Um, and and I was, just, I was I was handling him and he ended up being caught, executed, you know, tor- uh, caught, executed, sorry, tortured, and executed. Uh, uh, and I'll never forget that because um, you know, he was my responsibility. And so, you know, one of the things that uh, you know, in these, in, in some cases, particularly in conflict zones, you know, there is you know, the the price of failure is pretty extreme. Um, so again, I've I've lost friends. Um, you know, their their stars are up on the memorial wall at Langley. It's when you walk into CIA headquarters, you're walking on the right, and you see the stars. I think there's over 130, 140 plus now. Um, a huge majority of them from the war on terrorism. Um, or not not a huge majority, but a lot from the war on terrorism. And then and then of course the 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 foreigners, the the assets we had. Um, who were killed as well. You never forget that. Again, it's a it's a personal business, and you know I, I'll, I'll never forget. I, I remember when I received my promotion to the senior intelligence service, which is the equivalent of you know getting promoted to the general officer rank in the military. And so it, it's at CIA auditorium, which is called the bubble, um, and and you know this is a pretty select group. Um, in, in effect, everyone you know rising up to the one star rank. But I remember thinking I didn't deserve it um, because I had, you know, I had so many friends who had been killed and had been involved in some of these operations. And I, I there was a sense of guilt um, that I had. And I, I you know, the, the biggest trait for me is a, of a successful CIA officer is to, to be humble. So, you know, w- while I do go out and I talk a lot about the agency, I, there's a sense of humility I have that'll that'll never go away because, you know, we had tremendous successes. We also had tremendous failures as well. Yeah. So you you mentioned the. Uh the attacking coast, uh, and that's something I've read about extensively. And uh, several uh, officers, CIA officers who I've interviewed, had friends or, or, to some extent, knew some of those people who were killed. Um, and you know, I've put together social media posts to uh, to honor those people. Um, you know, as I felt, uh, as particularly under the Trump administration, there was a period where the CIA was kind of looked at as like. You know this negative thing, um, when in reality the uh, the folks at CIA make a ton of sacrifices, right? And um, and th- that post was essentially a, a nod and a tribute to the agency because I just felt like there was so much of this anti-CIA stuff going on, and uh, I thought it was so misplaced uh, because you know all of these people are patriots, uh, many who were killed were former special ops guys. Uh, right. In that situation in Coast, uh, there was a former SEAL and I think a Green Beret and, yep. and you know, police officers and stuff. So uh, so here are these patriotic Americans, uh, you know, risking everything. And, uh, and 
and somehow still getting a bad rap back at home. So it just didn't make sense to me. But um, so that scenario where where this happened was a uh, you know was a disaster, um, and and there was a lot written about this, and I, I read a book about it, which is a fascinating read. <clears throat> but you know, they spoke about the 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 man who carried out this attack and how he was a, a double agent and a triple agent. Um, can you talk about some of that? Is sure. That right. yeah. you know, there's, and, 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 you know, there's, there's enough that has been cleared um, for, by the agency, um, particularly Leon Panetta, you know, former director. And when he wrote his book, he had a, he had a, a big section on coast that was cleared. So, you know, there's, there's so many different aspects of this, uh, you know, to talk about, obviously the, the personal tragedy of, of the officers um, uh, who, who were killed. And, and ultimately it was a, uh, Al Qaeda ran a, a double agent operation at us and beat us. Um, they probably didn't have to because I think there was some security breakdowns, which which allowed it to be even more disastrous than it than it than it could have been. But but ultimately, you know, when we talk about humility, this is I don't think many of us um, uh, thought that Al Qaeda could run a double agent operation like the Russian intelligence services or the Chinese intelligence services. But but they did, um, and, and and ultimately it was. It was a it was a case of, uh, you know, everyone involved in this were incredibly well-meaning and dedicated and smart um, and and had spent years um, going after Al Qaeda and trying to help protect the homeland. Um, and then I think that you alluded to a Washington Post reporter, Joby Warwick, wrote a book called The Triple Agent. Yes. Um, and that's a that's a you know, I, I, I read that book and it was pretty painful to read because, I you know, I knew so much of what happened um, and and kind of. Uh, ultimately, I think just some some decisions were made at the last minute, which caused some pretty significant security breakdowns. And and the the thing that that is that that kind of I think gives us all pause is I've, I've made my share of mistakes operationally uh, over the years and probably got lucky that nothing bad happened. But in this case, some of the mistakes that were made, you know, it turned turned disastrous. And the best thing we can do on a, on a situation like Coast is learn from it. And I think the agency really has tried to with putting together, you know, better protocols for call high threat operational meetings, particularly in war zones, because we can't have this ever, ever happen again. So the, the best way we can honor the victims is to ensure that kind of we, we kind of tight, tighten up our tradecraft. But I felt very responsible for what happened there, um, along with many others. Um, it was really awful. One of the officers, one of the officers who I uh, who worked for me directly, Darren Levante, was killed. Um, he was a significant player in this. And and, you know, I've gotten to know his family very well. And, you know, he was a, he's an amazing, amazing story. Darren, um, uh, uh, he was a, a high school uh, baseball player. Um, was going to get drafted by the Cleveland Indians, turned it down and joined the Army. Um, and then from there, um, after serving uh, in the uh, uh, in the Army, he then went and he became he did a whole bunch of stuff. He was a cop. He was a U.S. Marshal. He joined the FBI. And then he finally settled on the agency. We always joke with him that he couldn't decide, couldn't keep a, a job in government long enough, but, um, you know, super smart, brave kid. And, uh, and even to this day, you know, my son who plays baseball in college now, he's, he carries Darren's little league baseball card that Darren's mom gave us. Wow. He still carries it in his baseball bag. And so, you know, these are things I, I'll never forgive myself for being involved as, as, as one of the operational man- managers in this. Um, uh, and all you can do is kind of, kind of carry on. And, and we certainly, um, Certainly uh, uh, did our part afterwards in trying to, um, you know, eliminate uh, as many members of Al Qaeda and the Taliban so they don't um, come after U.S. Uh, U.S. forces again. But, but, it, but from a purely intelligence perspective, this was a, 
uh, an intelligence operation Al Qaeda ran against us, and they ran it successfully. And and uh, and I think again, it goes back to that idea of humility. You know, I was I, I I was involved with numerous operations after this, and even in different theaters and all, all over the world. Um, some of which were spectacular successes, but I never got too big ahead. Um, and and because I knew that uh, I had that sense of humility that things can can go really wrong. And so that what does that mean? It means you got to sharpen your game. Um, you can't get complacent. And uh, and so that's how we have to honor uh, these victims. But it was a it was a pretty awful time. And there's a lot of people who still have very strong feelings on this, um, uh, who are upset with me and upset with others. Um, these are folks within the agency. And you know, I, I'll never forget one of the things that John that I did last year is um, you had mentioned former SEAL. Well, that was Jeremy Wise. Jeremy Wise yes. was killed uh, in Coast. He was one of our security guys. His brother. Bo, I ended up um, uh, getting him in to see the CIA director last year, Bill Burns, and then I had him come. You know, he came to D.C. and then I had him. I called up the Washington Nationals baseball team and I told him who he was, and they he had Bo throughout the first pitch. Um, and that's and that's, that's awesome. And so, you know, and and I remember having this conversation with Bo, and I say I I didn't know how he would react towards me, um, and I all I could say is I'm beyond sorry. And uh, and 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 some of the other family members have treated those of us who are involved in this pretty damn kindly, perhaps maybe too, too much so because they said that, look, we're all in the arena and, uh, and we all had the right intentions and doing the right thing, but pretty awful time. Um, and so honor, honor these folks. You just got to kind of keep at it and, uh, and, and just learn from it and, and certainly not shirk from our responsibilities in, in protecting America. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I think Bo has a book out, um, oh, the three wise men. Yes, and uh, yeah. great book. So not only was his brother Jeremy killed, his other brother was killed, and he was a uh, a Green Beret. Right, that's right. Yeah, special um, forces guys. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Incredible story. I mean, just you know, heart wrenching, and uh, yeah. Then and, and uh, you know, and so um, it's a great book. I would you know, so I'd recommend that book above my book. Have it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so no, that's awesome. And um, uh, yeah, I actually have a copy of his book. Uh, yeah. You know, so. Um, but when you say that there was some failure, obviously it was a failure. Um, and, and these things can happen. Um, you're not going to win all the time. Uh, but when you say there was some issues, are you referring like specifically to, uh, the, the guy being allowed to get so close without yeah, being perfect. searched, that kind of thing? Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Again, just one of those things, uh, you know, everything possible could, that went wrong, uh, that could go wrong, did go wrong. Um, with with really smart officers there, and and just I, you know, I, the, the one of the reasons why there's so many unknowns is that no one survived. Um, yeah. Would have that kind of knowledge on 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 what occurred, um, or 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 perhaps some some there were of course were survivors, but but again, it's you know I think that uh, Leon Panetta, the agency director, made a um, uh, the correct decision not to not to kind of place blame on anyone. Um, uh, and so, you know, although, although, although I guess some of us in positions of, of managerial authority over everything, you know, perhaps deserve some of it, but, but ultimately a lot of the people who were on the ground making these calls ended up, um, you know, not making it. And so, uh, that's, it's just, it's, it, it, this is something that's going to live, you know, um, you know, for a very long time as it should, um, within the agency population. And, and ultimately we have to just make sure this never happens again. So it's the operational lessons of this that are critically important to, to, to keep in mind. Yeah. And, and, you know, in that line of work and, you know, military as well, a lot of the, the lessons and tactics, techniques and procedures 
were born from some kind of failure. That's so, right. Um, you're a hundred percent right. Those TT, that's, I mean, unfortunately that's what it takes sometimes. Right. Um, uh, but, but again, it's, uh, you know, this, uh, there, there is, there, I, I think about that event, uh, uh, very often. Um, and, uh, it's just something that, you know, uh, I think that, you know, for those of us who are involved in it, we'll never forgive ourselves, um, for not maybe saying things or, or doing things differently. And, uh, I just, again, and, and later on in my career when, you know, I would, I would, you know, do something, uh, or be involved in an operation with spectacular results. You know, I never got a big head from it. I was I've always pleased that things worked out, but um, I had I had the highest of highs at the agency and then the lowest of lows as well. So your um, your wife also worked at CIA, right? Correct? Yeah, um, she was. You know, she made it to the senior intelligence service as well. We're like a it's a it's a pretty <laughs> interesting couple. Um, she's certainly smarter and better off than I was, but uh, yeah. So you know. Um, you know, we, uh, we kind of lived all over the world. You know, she, she wasn't with me in Afghanistan or Iraq, um, but certainly all the other Middle Eastern postings. And she had a heck of a career. She ran, she was a chief of operations of two separate divisions, Africa, and then, and then Iran operations. And so, um, and she's, she's, you know, uh, kind of closed her career out by being really involved in, in how, uh, the agency kind of can embrace technology, uh, in a better fashion. Um, if you, th- you know, you see, you, you know, you think about how espionage operations have changed. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, the, look at your smartphone, look at your car. It's a, it's a, a moving GPS device. I mean, the idea of being able to do things kind of clandestinely, it's gotten a lot harder. Sure. There's, yeah. It's really interesting on how we're, and of course I'm not, I haven't been in government for a couple of years, but, uh, uh, but again, like, I mean, think about, you know, if, if you're an intelligence officer, you want to go out and meet an agent and there's a hostile service looking at you. So obviously they're going to wire your house and, you know, if you're living in a foreign country, so, um, they're going to be able to track your car. They're going to see your phone activity, but think about, um, uh, you know, they're looking for patterns. And so if every night at, you know, you're watching sports center on ESPN, um, you know, you better make, or, or you're on your phone tweeting at seven o'clock, you better, you have an operational act that day, you better have someone else do that for you or else they'll see some, a pattern that's, that's amiss. And so it's just, or even, even the idea of, you know, traveling through borders, can we, can we run operations, you know, using false documents now? Well, the age of biometrics, how do you do that? And so the, you know, espionage has gotten harder. So it's, it's a, it's pretty cool, um, kind of feel to think about how we can defeat it. And I'll tell you, even in the last days of the agency, when people would, would talk about this, I would, I would tell a policymaker, you know, we can, we will be able to meet, we will meet an agent anywhere around the world. It's going to be hard. It's much harder now, but, um, the idea of getting face to face up, up close in front of the, the foreigners who agree to spy for us, you know, we still got to be able to do that, but it's tougher. And so kind of that, you know, how do we, you know, kind of, uh, work around this kind of what we call a ubiquitous technology environment. Um, uh, surveillance environment is, is, is pretty fascinating. Yeah, and you know, uh, on that sort of end of it, um, you know, I, I obviously believe in democracy and the system that we have in America and, and uh, you know, many Western countries. Uh, but, you know, places like China or Russia, for example, or, or maybe even more so China, uh, they have such control over what happens there that right. I would imagine, you know, the, the dictatorship style government in that aspect sort of works in their favor. Oh, it sure does. I mean, look, so, you know, <laughs> living in a democratic society means it's free and open, you know, travel, borders, things like that. So we almost we make it easy for our adversaries. 
right. um, to operate here. But on the, on, the, on, the, you know, on the other side, like if you're if you're in a Moscow or Beijing, think about um, again the, the uh, in, in an autocratic system where you know that it's not only that. Um, they'll be able to follow you via any means, camera systems, this and that. It's also everyone also, you know, might be reporting. So the little old lady sitting on her stoop, you know, might be you know, reporting to the internal service. Right. Um, so, yeah, so it's a uh, it's a uh, it's certainly harder. But again, uh, I, I always I would always and I'll take it to my grave. We can meet someone overseas anywhere. Might be hard, but we'll be able to do it. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Before um, before covid. So I, you know, I travel quite a bit. Um and I'd done a Middle East trip in the summer of 2019. And then when I got back, I was thinking about my next trip. And I actually wanted to go to China. And uh, oh, yeah. I'd done a bunch of research and had ideas on, you know, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. But uh, on from like a security standpoint, I was talking to people and reading things online. And uh, what I was being told and what I understood is basically if if you go there, you know, you bring your laptop and your phone, like they're going to be inside everything. So what a lot of journalists do from what I've been told is uh, they'll go there with electronics that they're not intending to use right. when they leave. Yep. Yeah. So yep. I, it's, it's almost like taking a burner phone. You yeah. Know, just, you know, it's just, it's just something that, that yeah, you toss right out. hundred um, percent. And because, you know, and, but, but, you know, here's the, here's the amazing thing, John, if you think about this. So, so this, so but hostile service can can find out anything about you right now. So I, I don't know you, I don't know your social media profile, but let's say you are you are a a regular user of um, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter. A hostile service can just with that only, um, and, and of course just your email. They can they will be able to 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 establish your pattern of life anywhere you go. Yeah. They'll they'll your likes, your dislikes, what you're buying, what you're doing at night. I mean, people put their whole lives out on, mm-hmm. on these things. So. So it's it's pretty incredible as a targeting mechanism what a hostile service can do. Not even if you have to travel to their country, just they can do it from Moscow or Beijing right now. But hey, you know what, what you do each day. Um, it's a uh, it's it's pretty scary uh, when you think about that. And so you know everyone has just put their lives out on the internet and social media, and that's just what it is. And and here's the other thing: if you if you don't do that, sometimes it looks weird too. Yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, but ultimately, um, you know, you, 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 you know, you're you probably your your front yard, your back rat, backyard, your vacation home, your car, all your friends, everything's online. So if someone if someone were to say, hey, I want to I'm, I'm a Russian intel officer, I want to meet John, um, you know, he'd probably be able to find you right. uh, in terms of where you're going to bars, restaurants, friends, sports games, you know, um, all of a sudden some dirt, na- some dude named, you know, Sergey sitting next to you at a Knicks game. You better, you better right. wonder why. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, a friend of mine, <clears throat> uh, we've actually done some business together and, and uh, created a, a, a company and website where we produce content and we have some retired agency folks who write articles and, and review articles and stuff like that. And what he does full time is he's an OSINT analyst, yep. uh, so open source intelligence Love for it. the audience. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, he spent a number of years working for a contractor, uh, but you know the, this OSINT thing—it's—it's it's so fascinating because you can find out so much about someone just from open source information, social media, etc. Et so I would imagine, uh, you know, the OSINT folks, you know, working for the FSB or or the Chinese or or what have yep. you. 
uh, probably have more tools to dig a little deeper. And um, yeah, and, and you can piece together so much about people. It's a targeting package. It's yeah, a, that's a targeting package. Again, even I mean, and, and you know, uh, uh, and I guarantee they're doing this. Um, and so, because we do it, you know, so right. it's uh, yeah, but it's uh, it's it's people's lives are are, are out there. When, you know, I think about when I joined the agency in 1993 and I retired in, in, uh, in July of 2019, but I, I went through a transformation in my belief in OSINT because at first we were all pretty arrogant, you know, because the secret world is more important. We're the, we're the cool guys and gals. We have TS clearance. We read SIGINT. We read the most sensitive human reports. And what is this open source? Reading newspapers. Right. When I, when I retired in 2019, my entire philosophy had changed. And I'm of the opinion now that actually – the OSINT world is about 70 to 80 percent of actually what intelligence collection should be. And then and then what's complementary is SIGINT and human imagery We're, to fill in those. So we need we need a human agent, um, you know, inside the Kremlin to tell us what Putin's going to do. Got it. Right. But meanwhile, you have commercial imagery shops, which can give you incredible uh, you know, resolution on what the Russian military is doing open source. And so I think the entire open source world has changed and. Um, and, and one of the things that I that that I that when you leave government, especially now, like I, I can still and, and, you know, I talk to my friends who do this as well. You know, a bunch of us you know, kind of, you know, are talking heads. So I'm, I'm, I go on Morning Joe on MSNBC uh, maybe once a week, every two weeks to talk about these days, talk about Russia, Ukraine stuff. And I'm able to do that because the amount of information that I can gather open source, I can still be a credible pundit. Um, uh, because there's so much out there yeah. and, uh, and so I guess the world has really changed. Now there's, there's always going to be a need for human agents. We always, of course, have to collect SIGINT. Um, uh, but, but in some sense, it, these are, these are, these are critical, you know, pieces you know, that, that fill in the picture because the big picture really can be collected via OSINT. And I think that there's been a transformation in the, you know, in the intelligence business and, um, and just think like, I, you know, I, I probably had, you know, thinking of a dinosaur before, but I've changed my tune a lot. I still love human. It's really, it's critical. Um, but boy, there's a lot out there uh, in open source that you can get, kind of find out about the world. Yeah. It, it's really fascinating. And I sort of learned about it in like probably from 2018 on. Um, but we, we had several OSINT trained folks who were doing stuff for us, um, articles and content creation and things like that. And uh, some of them were f looking at Africa um, and in doing this OSINT work with a focus on certain regions in Africa, they were able to spot things that, uh, you know, foreign intelligence services were doing. And it was all through just an open source Thing, right. and it was insane and kind of mind blowing uh, what people are able to pick up just from looking at social media and things like that. Um, I, I like that, and that's, that's and we we should embrace that. You know, you can't. And this is, we're not a competition with that. I mean, this is this this is you know, there's got to be, you know, this is one of the ints, and 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 I think the intelligence community has to kind of move forward on it. I, I'll just you know, on this on this note, I, I want to praise. There's a there's you know the probably the most famous um, open source investigative firm is Bellingcat, mm -hmm. um, who have done an incredible job of uncovering kind of Russian malfeasance around the world. But when Bellingcat kind of you know then they they they've done numerous investigations, but I'll never forget when they uncovered you know the Russian uh, the you know the Russian intelligence you know hit team that would that tried to kill Sergei Skripal in the UK in Salisbury in the United Kingdom. 
back back I think it was 2018. Mm-hmm. They did this, you know, via you know again it's not OSINT in the sense of you know they they the the Bellingcat goes and, and obtains kind of you know it's commercially sourced da- data. Um, but I remember when they put together this whole thing and released it, you know, I was the, if those of us kind of on the inside in government were like, holy crap, <laughs> you know, they, they, these guys were better than us in this instance. And so the intelligence community has to really embrace that as well. And, and, uh, I think we're getting there, but, um, there's, it's just a huge part uh, to play now. So you, you know, obviously you, as you stated, you spent most of your career dealing with counterterrorism in the Middle East. Um, do you have any professional experience, you know, looking at Russia and, and places sure. like that? Sure. So the last two years of my career, um, well, let me just let me let me go back. As, as I told you before, when I was promoted to the senior intelligence service, you know, that's when you, you know, you kind of go to that one and two star rank and whatever. And so you lose control over <laughs> what you do. And so while the Middle East was my, you know, my it was my uh, uh, my preferred area of responsibility, um, uh after the 2016 elections, where when the Russians really kicked our ass, um, frankly, you know, the Russians ran probably the most successful covert action program in history and in, in, um, uh, in everything they did to kind of screw with uh, with us in 2016. They took a whole bunch of, of people like me from the Middle East and the counterterrorism shops and they moved us over um, to to do Russia. And so the last two years, I was the deputy and I was the chief of operations of over what's called the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center. Um, and that was 52 countries, everything from Ireland to the farthest time zones of Russia. But ultimately, um, I, I was overseeing, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, included in my portfolio were Russian operations. And, and in particular, it's because we, we really saw Europe, ironically enough, with what happened with Ukraine. But Europe is the battleground um, in our in our kind of silent war with the Russians. And so um, the idea was to try to kind of push back. So I had two years of, of experience um, uh, doing that. And having had none before. I mean, I'd gone up against Russian intel officers in the Middle East, but I wasn't a, a Russia hand at all. And so, but they wanted it to take that kind of same kind of spirit that we had. Remember that I talked about what September 12th was like. Well, they wanted us to treat, um, you know, the day after the, the you know, or, or, or Russia election interference. Um, they wanted us to have that same ethos and really go after the Russians and, and, and kind of push back uh, against them. Primarily, and this entailed exposing their intelligence operations and, you know, what they call their active measures campaigns all over the world. And so um, I think we were, we were pretty successful at that. And uh, and that's what I did to the end of my career. And then unfortunately, um, and I think we'll probably talk about it now is, is, you know, on a trip to Moscow in December 2017, I was, you know, I got incredibly sick or, uh, or an ill um, that caused my ultimate retirement. And that's where kind of I ran up um, what I believe was, uh, getting hit by uh, uh, what we call Havana syndrome um, when I was clearly targeted at a at a at a five star hotel in in Moscow on what was kind of a, a senior level trip that I took, but something that certainly changed my life. Okay, I I did not I knew that you had experienced that, but yeah. I didn't realize that that was sort of what kind of got you to sure. retire. Um, it did. So you know, I, I it was I woke up in the middle of the night um, again. So let me just preface this. I was I was going to Russia to, to see Ambassador uh, John Huntsman, uh, the, the, then the, the ambassador at the time, who was this kind of distinguished, you know, former U.S. official. He was our ambassador in Beijing. And previously, I think he was governor of Utah. Um, but I but I wanted to gain what we call area familiarization because I've been Middle East my whole career. And so but I was put in charge of, of uh, uh, our clandestine operations, you know, in 50 plus countries. So Russia was going to be an important part of it. So I made a trip there. In December 17, 
Um, it was, you know, certainly not an operational trip. I mean, at, at that point, I was probably a, you know, equivalent of a, you know, a, a three-star general. Um, uh, and so I was also there to meet my Russian counterparts. Ironically, the U.S. and the Russian intelligence services still have a line of communication open, which is actually a good thing. Um, we don't get much done at all, but you have to have that line open even with your adversaries. And so in one of the first nights of the trip, I woke up in the middle of the night with a staggering case of vertigo. Um, you know, tinnitus, my ears were ringing. I was physically sick. Um, and, you know, something pretty awful had happened to me. Uh, I wasn't sure if I had been poisoned. It was food poisoning or poisoned or, or whatever. But I kind of stumbled through the rest of the trip and then and then came back and um, and really endured, you know, years of of, you know, kind of blinding headaches. I couldn't drive. I lost my long distance vision. Um, a lot of that has I've, I've regained probably 80 percent of all that. Um, I was treated at uh, at Walter Reed's traumatic brain, brain injury center. Um, it's called the national, it's called NICO, the national intrepid center of excellence, which yeah. is a pretty extraordinary place. Um, uh, with where I actually was with a lot of former special operations folks who I knew. Um, but ultimately I've, I've gotten much better. Um, uh, but it, but it, this is something that did derail my career. And, and what I do now is I speak out just a, a lot about this because I want to make sure that, um, U S government personnel, and this includes, you know, everyone from state department to CIA, to the U S military, to special operations community, um, that that uh, that they they get the proper health care because it's this it's you know it's this kind of silent injury and it's and it's you know there's nothing visible. Uh, but I was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury um, from you know the best doctors on the planet, and so something certainly happened to me. Uh, but I just want to make sure people get health care, and so I've been pretty pretty vocal about that. It's kind of a weird turn in my career, um, in my life, uh, uh, but it's but something that means a lot to me. And I, I look at this very similar to what, you know, happened with the U S military in Vietnam with agent orange or, or even now with, you know, with burn pits from Afghanistan and Iraq that, you know, there are these, you know, there are things that happen, um, to our kind of our, you know, our warriors. Um, and it takes a long time for the U S government to acknowledge it, but they, they should. And, uh, and I think ultimately, um, you know, we'll get to the bottom of this now, but it's something that I really believe that we really need to make sure that our folks who are hit by this, whether it's for the, the original group in Cuba to mm -hmm. kind of the, Many others um, recently that they that they get proper health care. Uh, so the the reason that it's called Havana syndrome is because uh, American personnel were experiencing this uh, right. these symptoms in Cuba. Starting in 2016, I have a whole bunch of friends who were could have competed in the CrossFit championships, were were total studs, and then they they got hit by this, and they're 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 medically retired. They walk with a service dog. Um, they they've they've gone blind in one eye. Um, wow. Some of them. I mean, so it's it's awful. Some of the injuries, um, but ultimately, uh, uh, it started off in, in in Cuba with you know 20, 30, 40 people affected, and and many of these officers will never recover, and they had to retire. And uh, and wow. just the story is the U.S. government not treating them well for a while. It's unfortunately this is nothing new. Um, I think, uh, uh, but um, uh, but it started in Havana, and of course it moved on to multiple other countries, and uh, and so it's it's become quite a mess. Um, and so, you know, there's I, I put this in several bins. One is we have you know, there has to be accountability for the U.S. government officials who didn't take this seriously for us. Um, that's the first one. The second one is on health care. we got to get people. I mean, it's a, just a class. You know, I wrote a book on leadership. This is a classic leadership thing. If someone's hurting, get them health care. The idea we were denied health care for some time is is immoral at, at best. And then the last piece is to find out who's doing this. And a lot of us think the Russians are. Right. They've had a history of a directed energy weapons program. There's tons of data on this. Um, uh, you know, our, all the doctors at, at Walter Reed and then also other doctors at Johns Hopkins and University of Pennsylvania all believe we were hit by, by a directed energy weapon. There's, um, and so it's, but we have to find, 
there's got to be an investigation. There is one. Um, it's going to take a long time. I always, you know, I always tell people it took us 10 years to find Bin Laden. Um, and so it's going to take take some time to find out who's behind this. But we got to get that get that right as well, because in my view, this is, you know, an act of war on U.S. personnel. Yeah. And and because of things like this, uh, the Havana syndrome attacks and I'm sure other things happen. Um, uh, it, when people are sort of uh, pro Putin, uh, pro Russia and America, it really baffles me because yeah. they don't view us in that way. And um, it's very clear from many things that they do that they view us as adversaries. And I feel like oh, yeah. we should view them the same way. And, um, you know, I, I read a bunch about Putin and, and sort of his rise to power and, and how he stayed in power in Russia. And uh, he's he's very uh, aggressive and, and sort of bold in, in many of his actions. Uh, and you mentioned... Uh, the attempted assassination in the UK, but right. uh, from I think uh, the 2000s uh, till now, they've assassinated several. Oh yeah, uh, Russians right. who had some sort of beef with Putin, and they were assassinated in on British soil, including some of the the British citizens who worked for these guys. Um, right, and look, look, Vladimir Putin's a war criminal, and, and yeah. I say this even before. Uh, what what the Russian military has done in Ukraine, which is you know atrocious, and I, I think that's been you know splashed all over the media. But you know one of the things that I I I look at with some irony is he was a war criminal before this. Um, the Russian Air Force killed four thousand civilians in Syria. Um, the Russians have had assassination squads you know running helter skelter not only in Russia itself but also in Europe. Yeah. Um. Uh. And, and so you know this is this is a, a so you're right in the sense you know Russia still considers us the main enemy. Um, but, it, but Putin and, and where the Russian security services are now, you know, there is, there are no morals or ethics, um, uh, involved. And so, you know, I think we have to treat them what they are is a, it's a very serious adversary who they do not play by any kind of the, the diplomatic norms. Um, and it, it's, and so, uh, I've been, I've been very vocal in terms of, of Ukraine. We have to do more to help the Ukrainians win. Um, and the only metric that matters is the number of dead Russians who go home in body bags. And that sounds pretty stark. Um, but if you know Russia, and I know Russia a little bit, again, I only did it for a couple of years, but certainly my friends who are really old Russia hands, you know, when the Russians do something, you got to punch them in the nose. Um, right. you know, giving concessions is a atrocious idea. There's not a single Russian expert I know who thinks it's a good idea for us to push for kind of negotiations now. Um, you know, we have to bloody and hurt the Russians. Uh, that the only thing they know is uh, in terms of that is respect. And I go back Look, John, you, you probably remember the incident in Syria where um, Delta uh, and JSOC, you know, killed 300 Russian mercenaries. Mm -hmm, yeah. group. Um, that is a classic example. And the response from Russia was what? It was nothing. Right. <laughs> so because we kicked the shit out of them. And that's the only way to deal with uh, deal with them. And, and once we accept that, I think we'll, we'll kind of come up with better policies. But the idea of negotiating with uh, with Putin is to me is ludicrous. Yeah. And the the whole situation with uh, Ukraine and um, things that what's happening there. Uh, I I'm friends with. It's so interesting. So before I started doing a podcast and all of this stuff, uh, one of the things I was doing was uh, I co-founded a a sort of fitness and lifestyle company called Bar Stars. And um, essentially, what it is is uh, some gym gymnastic style movements with you know extreme levels of proficiency at calisthenics and body weight training and stuff like that. So 
we traveled all around the world. We, we were big on YouTube and, and we met a lot of people. And uh, I have Russian friends, I have Ukrainian friends who were in this community of, of exercising and, and whatnot. And um, it's fascinating to see them now. Uh, all of the Russian guys who I know are very pro-Russia, pro-Putin, anti-America, anti-Ukraine. And the Ukrainians, a lot of them are fighting in the war. And, right. Um, it's just crazy to see how things have changed, and and they were all friends. Like like when the we used to host uh, tournaments uh, in New York City, uh, and when all, all the Russians and Ukrainians they sort of came together, and we kind of looked at them all as like the same group of people. Right, right, and they were friends. Yeah, and now it's like they're they're complete enemies. You know, it's it's so crazy to watch. Um, but well, uh, I don't know if your company had anything to do with, but I'll tell you, President Zelensky looks jacked. I don't know if he's been yeah, no. he looks he is fit. I love it. Yeah, and what's interesting is, you know, there's a lot, uh, I think particularly in the, the right-wing media that's sort of not like pro-Russia, but there's like a, a favorable, favorable yeah, look towards Russia. Russia and, yeah. you know, Total bullshit. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I have a friend who's a, like an active-duty Ukrainian Special Forces guy, and, right. and I actually done a podcast with him, and I, I speak to him regularly. And uh, I asked him about, Zelensky and how he's viewed and, and his uh, perspective of, of how that is there. And, he, and what he said to me, what, he's from Kiev, yeah. and uh, he, what he said to me is all his family and friends are 100% pro-Zelensky. And, uh, and there's just a lot on like the sort of conservative, uh, you know, pro-military social media that's like anti-Zelensky, anti-Ukraine, and it's such bullshit. I think it's you know, in in particular before the war. I mean, there, again, there was this idea that the Russian military was not woke; that they were tough. Mm -hmm. but the Russian military turns out to be a bunch of rapists and killers, and pretty damn pathetic. Um, and and you know, it's a it's you know, in essence, that I think there was a big analytic misjudgment in the U.S. government too that the, the Russian the logistics are terrible, their equipment's lousy, yeah, um, they have no will to fight. They're using you know, so it's. Uh, but but, you know, that 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 notion of the Russians somehow being tough, which, again, a lot of the you're right, a lot of the right wing really pr uh, promoted was is total bullshit. And this drives me nuts. Yeah, uh, because, again, Russia is an enemy of the United States. And the idea that somehow Putin um, is seen favorably by some Americans, I just I can't even fathom that. I mean, it's it's it must be based on ignorance, but it also could be based on the last, you know, not to get into politics now, but last several years of brainwashing. Yeah, uh, I, I not, think it has to do with that. Um, yeah. Uh, one a, of my my good it, friends is uh you know he's a very pro trump and um anytime we speak about like russia like it's he, it, he always talks about putin in like a favorable way amazing and and what i always end up telling him is if if you if let's say putin was the the president of the united states and some of the things he did was done here instead of in russia you would totally hate this guy like it's right. not even a question you know and um it's just it's such a weird thing to me, but um, you know it's 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 interesting. So I, I, I've you know so I wrote this book. I wrote my book Clarity and Crisis: Leadership Lessons, and so I've and I, you know it's it's I did it. It's about almost a, it's a little over a year, and I've gone out and I promoted it all over the place. I've been on all the different networks and this and that. But but you know one of the things and Harper Collins was was the publisher, and they were really good to me. Um, but one of the things they were getting annoyed with, um, you know, at some point was like, hey, Mark, you're too active on social media or people, you know, you're going on MSNBC or CNN and you're, you're blasting the Trump administration for stuff or blasting Trump. And he said, you're going to alienate um, uh, people who might want to uh, 
uh, by your book. And, and even and they, they, they talked to me about that, the famous Michael Jordan line, you know, even you know, Republicans buy sneakers, too, because Michael Jordan never was really uh, as a social activist like like LeBron or some others yeah. uh, were much more outspoken. But I said, look, I said, I got to I got to hold true to myself. I think so. So I, I'm, I'm saying this apolitically like Trump, especially in January 6th, was a, a disaster for this country. Um, and so, so you, my, my friends who are Republicans go vote for someone else. That's fine. But, but, but the, the damage that, that I think Trump did to kind of the, the norms, the democratic norms of our country is really profound. And if I lose book sales on it, what am I going to do? The book is not political. It doesn't say anything about anything other than leadership lessons from my time, um, you know, leading in tough situations and how I built teams that really prospered under times when you had a lack of situational awareness or, times in the gray. I got really good at that in the end and I wanted to kind of push that forward. And it's, a, it's, I love the book cause it's, these are kind of timeless principles, but I, you know, I'm also an American. And so if I'm on Fox or CNN or MSNBC anywhere, someone asks me something, I'm gonna give them my opinion. And if that hurt me, it, it, it hurt me, but, but boy, but January 6th was a, was a really tough moment for us for myself. And I think a lot of other folks in the national security establishment, because this is something I, I saw in the, in the third world, in the Middle East all the time, not in America. And it's a, and, and to be silent, I thought was crazy just to sell my book. So, you know, I'll, I'll live with those consequences. But, um, you know, that's a, it is what it is. They're, they're probably right when they said that. Maybe some people would look at you and go, oh, there's no way I'm getting this. But uh, it, it's, it's so crazy to me to, for that kind of thing to come from conservatives, right? Because these are the people who are pro-America, pro-military, and, and they should be pro, uh, you know, officers of the agency who were overseas risking everything for 20 plus years. Right. Uh, and to, because you disagree with one of his viewpoints, because he he's talking bad about a president that you like, a politician, right. a, a businessman, uh, the fact that you would not buy his book or not and, and or shut yourself off to him just because you disagree on that one thing is it's crazy to me and it's interesting because the right always talks about how the the left is big on cancel culture and right. and woke and all this stuff but when a lot of people on the right do the same thing just when it's when someone's going against their viewpoint you know no I hear you and so Again, it's it's I have to also be just true to myself. But I mean, so it's it, for those of us. Look, I worked for the CIA for 26 years and I was on the operational side and I was involved in counterterrorism operations. So and so I am not I am one of those never Trumpers. I do not like him. Uh, you know, this is not someone who I think espoused, you know, things that I would want to teach my kids. Um, uh, uh, and so so the right gets pissed at me for saying that. But I was also a C. I also was. I worked for an organization that the left hates as well. So right. I'm, I'm just stuck right in the middle. Yeah, you're just getting. And yeah, I'm right smack. I'm I'm very centrist, and and unfortunately in America today, it's you know it's like I I you know I, I would never in my right mind ever vote for Trump. Um, but again, there's a lot of stuff on the on the left that I don't believe in either. But those of those of us in the center kind of have no no ideological no home anymore. Yeah. Um. Uh, uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, so when I get embraced by sometimes by the left, I'm like, you gotta remember I worked at the CIA. I don't think you guys like that place. Right. <laughs> and then, and then, but you know, just, it, it's, it's, everything is political now. Um, and I, 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 you know, I, I, I gotta be smart when I, 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 you know, been on this kind of rolling book tour. So I was in Fort Worth, Texas, um, which is a massively conservative area. 
And and it was a and it was a it, it was a great. You know, I gave my whole leadership talk. That you know, people bought a ton of books. Uh, they gave me a standing ovation. And then in the Q and A, someone said, "What do you think of those patriots who are being jailed after what they did on January 6th? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm like, I got to find an expo route out of this. I'm, <laughs> Somebody I'm pop a smoke grenade. Like, yeah, the, the room's gonna turn on me. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's wild stuff, man. And and you know, I consider myself to be a centrist as well. And um, there are some things that I agree with from progressives, and there are some things I agree with with conservatives. And but it's so funny because if I talk to grew up in New York, you know, there are conservatives here, but it's mainly liberal progressives. Right. And um, so people that I knew growing up are mainly liberal and then a lot of the people who i'm friends with now through the podcast and through other things that i do are very conservative so uh i i I get to see what a lot of liberals think about things and what a lot of conservatives think about things and uh if i speak to my liberal friends they look at me as some super like conservative guy i've even been called pro-trump um (laughs) right and then if I say anything that goes against what my conservative friends think, oh, you, you're, you're, you know, you hate Trump, you're a never Trumper, you're this, you're that. And it's like, like, I'm, if I say something about a particular topic, that's all I'm saying. I'm not right. like, it, it, there's no secret meaning behind it, you know, but it's just where we've gotten to at this point. John, let me give you a, a perfect example of how I, you can't stare. It's like when I say us, I mean, I'll, I'll take the liberty of saying that you can't stare at you know, folks like that. So. So I, you know, again, I, I make a regular appearance on MSNBC on Morning Joe, which is a, you know, obviously it's a big time liberal network. And um, that 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 show is, is it's the number one rated show in the D.C. area. And I think maybe New York, too. But it's but, it you know, uh, and so everyone my conservative friends like I can't believe you're going in there. But at the same time, I write a weekly column for The Washington Examiner, which is a hugely conservative paper. Right. And and it's funny, too. And, and they when they called me and they said, will you write for us? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you, you, you I mean, I don't know. They, they, they wanted kind of their they, you know, they see me as their kind of liberal commentator. And I was like, OK, so so everyone's mad at me all the time. Yeah. Can't <laughs> so escape. I, it. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things I've been doing is um, so, you know, so I wrote the book on leadership and I've. You know, I, I work with sports teams on this, primarily college baseball teams. So I love talking to because it's baseball is perfect for all these leadership principles on, um, on how to lead under under times of crisis, because um, it, it's really about building the right culture and, and, and kind of, uh, 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 you know, unity of effort and teamwork. Um, and so I do baseball teams. The other thing is I talk to a lot of police departments. And I've been going back and, uh, down to the Philly Police Department quite a bit. Um, and, and I talk to them about kind of leadership um, uh, and also about, you know, wellness and resiliency and, and how to take your, take care of yourself, your body. Um, and, and one of my, one of the guys I go down there with is a former, uh, army special operations, um, uh, uh, veteran of, I think a thousand combat missions. And he always says your body's a combat chassis, so you got to take care of it. And so this so I'm, we're trying to tell cops, beat cops on the street because ultimately, and I went on MSNBC and I talked about this and I said, look, I don't believe in defund the police. I believe yeah, it's a terrible police, idea. I need we need police reform. There's yeah. terrible things we see, but we need a functioning police department. It's an indispensable institution for the United States. And if you look at the violence in cities now, how can you disagree with that? So let's help the cops. Right. And and of course, the left goes crazy, you know, <laughs> calling oh, me. my God. And, and and so and but it's you know, it's 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 all you got to do is try to be true to yourself. And I hope that American politics kind of shifts where there are there is room for people in the center. Um, but who knows? Uh, and uh, you just got to kind of 
keep keep pushing at it. But again, it's you know the the idea of of helping the helpers. So whether I'm talking about wellness and resiliency and mental health for for special operations and intelligence folks, or or uh, or, or or cops on the on the beat, um, you know, it's just something that I that I really have enjoyed doing in my retirement. I don't get paid anything for this stuff. My wife keeps telling me you got to do something that makes money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I got a nice advance for the book, but aside from that, everyone calls me up, says, "Hey, Mark, you know, my buddy of mine's in the DEA. Can you come talk to, you know, our our, our agent?" Sure. And afterwards, my wife's like, "Did you even like?" I guess I can't charge them. She's like, "Yes, you can. People yeah. make tons of money doing leadership talks." I'm like, "I, I don't yeah, know. absolutely, a lousy business, man." So you're also a uh, a board member for Sound Off. Right. Um, so that's what I was talking about. about Sound that, yeah. is, a, is a really cool organization um, where it's a it's actually it's a it's an app on your phone and it provides for anonymous uh, mental health resources for uh, for the special operations community. And it was started by a guy by the name of William Negley, whose brother-in-law, Bill Mulder, was a member of SEAL Team 6 who, you know, right after separating from the Navy, killed himself. Um, and so, you know, veteran suicide is a horrible issue. There's, uh, I think the figure is 17 uh, veterans a day kill themselves, which is staggering when you think about it. And so he started this um, this nonprofit and then developed this app for a phone. And it's it's absolutely taken off. You know, it's been endorsed by all the special operations foundations. Um, uh, obviously, Bill Mulder was a SEAL. So, you know, Naval Special Warfare, uh, the command, as well as the Navy SEAL Foundation are really behind it. But then so is Delta's foundation. So, you know, it's it's because there's such a need for this. And so one of the things I've really been doing is is trying to help with fundraising because with any nonprofit, you know, we need money right. um, for the thing for, for it to operate. And, and ultimately, it's it's helping people right now. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, you can find it on the Web. It's, you know, sound off. Um, and it's again, it's a it's an app that where, where people can um, anonymously connect um, with a mental health care provider because you see the stigma of mental health especially in these elite units, people don't want to take a knee, you know, and, and again, I went through my traumatic brain injury. I met a lot of SEALs and special forces members who really told me about this. You know, they, they, they there was a stigma involved, you know, you're, you, you know, you're not shot. There's no, there's no gunshot. Um, but their heads really rattled. Something's yeah. not right. Um, they got, you know, and, 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 and there's huge issues with PTS and, and I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this, that for my friends from Delta and my friends from SEAL team six, there's not a single one of them who are not banged up after 20 years. And uh, and so this, you know, uh, uh, this sound off, this app can really help. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm on the board, but I don't make a penny of it. It's a nonprofit. It's just designed to, to provide to, to put someone who is in need um, uh, uh, anonymously talking to a mental health care uh, provider because because these, you know, these these operators just don't do this. They don't get health care because they're they're so worried about the stigma of of being kicked out of their units. And it's it's a, it's a, it's just such a huge problem. So I'm really proud of doing this and I'll, you know, I hope we kind of make some headway and any, any kind of, uh, you know, big finance, big money donors, um, who are listening to this, uh, uh today, please, uh, please, uh, you know, help us out because, uh, you know, the one thing that we need is just, you know, operating expenses. Um, every founded, you know, it's been, it's like the, the really the U S military has embraced this totally. Um, cause it's, it's a, it's a giant hole that the, the VA cannot fill. Yeah. And it's a, a huge problem. Uh, even, if, especially in the military and, and particularly in special ops, yep. uh, even if guys don't experience some kind of catastrophic injury while on a mission or something, the uh, all the training that they do and they're training constantly, uh, they're shooting in confined spaces, uh, breaching into doors yep. and stuff like that. There's all this residual uh, sort of damage that you know your brain is hit by this overpressurization and 
so to some extent, a, a lot of these guys have uh, different, you know, variations of a of a brain injury, and um, it, it can really change people completely. It is. Uh, I mean, it, this is a, it is a crisis. Um, I think you know it's acknowledged now, um, uh, but it's a it is an absolute absolute crisis. And uh, you know, again, I have I, just like you, I have tons of friends in this community, and and you know, everybody is banged up after twenty years of this. It's almost impossible not to. My, I have great friends who I see all the time, and and you know these are these are you know former again SF or SEALs or or, or they were Delta or maybe they were in um, Air Force Special Operations uh, units, and there everybody has some some significant injury, whether it's uh, you know you know some it, it's something more kind of you know tangible like back or or knees, but but a lot of it is is head injuries yeah. and. And brain trauma, and that is really scary because again, it's it's also it's it's harder to treat, um, and and what what I've seen and what I see is and and trust me, it happened to me as well until you kind of get it under control is, um, you know, there's a there's a tendency to self medicate, which mm-hmm. means you know alcohol abuse, um, certainly uh, you know drug abuse, and so and that goes down a really really bad path. But that is the classic way to deal with this, and that is absolutely when you when you talk to, um, you know. Uh, uh, doctors involved with traumatic brain injury at PTS. That is the absolute worst thing to do. Right. Um, so, you know, so again, if, if, I, if I can help there's some folks and when, when I go and I talk to police departments, we have SWAT units taking us aside saying they're having trouble with this too. And, um, uh, again, if you, you know, I, I think about when I was in Philly, there's an area in Philly called Kensington, which, which looks like, I mean, it's, a, it's essentially, a, it's a neighborhood with a giant open air drug market. It's the most depressing thing I've seen in a big city anywhere in this country. And I, and I, I was shocked when I went there. Um, so, so you have the, the tragedy of what's happened there where there are people are selling drugs, shooting up openly. The, the police have, there's no, there's no ability to, to combat this other than to try to help people. And then you have a beat cop who's assigned there for six months and he's got to go home every day after seeing this. Um, pretty amazing. Um, uh, or, or, or a place where, you know, there's 500 murders every year in, in Philadelphia. When I, when I've gone back and forth to Philly in, in both times, I've gone there, met with cops, went, did some ride alongs with them, responded to, you know, um, some shootouts. Um, uh, and then, and then the cops I was with the next week, um, you know, two of them were shot. I mean, it's, so it's, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, and these were, you know, and again, I'm, I'm simplifying things totally, you know, the, the, the incredibly ethnically diverse work, you know, uh, police force in Philadelphia. You got to be from Philly to be a cop there. Um, you know, clearly there are bad cops in, in police forces, but there's also a ton of good cops who really care about the neighborhoods. And uh, and and it was pretty extraordinary to me. Um, again, it re- reminded me of kind of my old life um, of doing a really thankless job. Um, but someone's got to do it. So, again, if I can help out kind of on the, on the leadership and the and the mental health aspect, certainly worth it. Yeah, that's fantastic work, um, and I, I think it's necessary work. Uh, so, if anyone listening uh, is interested in keeping up with what you got going on, or they want to get a copy of your book, where are the best places they can do that? Oh, sure. So, it's Clarity in Crisis: Leadership Lessons from the CIA. It's on Amazon. Um, it's uh, I think it's coming out in paperback in August um, uh, as well. So, you can jump on there, um, and uh, and you know, please. Uh, I hope you enjoy the book. Um, and uh, and I, I, I'm trying to think I'll, I'll be doing a little more some more some more book events um, as they kind of pop up. But uh, and then and then one of the things, too, I'm on um, I, my website is markpolymeropolis.com. It's pretty easy. Um, but on that, you can kind of, you know, just hit me up. Um, and if anyone wants to chat about stuff, I, I actually one of the things that, again, 
I, I, you know, people kind of reach out to me all the time. Um, and, uh, and I respond to every one of the emails or stuff on, uh, on social media. Um, you know, particularly if it's, you know, stuff about the book or even about the intelligence community. I also, you know, I mentor a ton of college kids who are interested in, in joining, uh, you know, in, in joining up in national security. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty accessible. All right. That's fantastic. So I, I do recommend that people get the book. Um, I consumed it on audio through Audible. Uh, it was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, you can, you know, check him out on social media. You, you're pretty active. Oh, yeah. Um, Twitter, at M Polymer. Okay. And on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. At M Polymer as well. And I tweet about anything. I don't know. It probably, I, 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 you know, I, I, we talked about before about, um, you know, don't put too much stuff on social media. Well, unfortunately, sometimes I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it was fantastic to sit down and talk to you. Um, I know this, these kind of conversations, people get a lot from it. Uh, it gives them a different perspective on topics that they're interested in and, and really opens some folks' eyes to, you know, some of the realities that's out there today. So, uh, again, thank you for doing this, and I want to thank you for your service as well. Thanks, John. Had a great time. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll come up to New York City one time. We can, uh, we can get together. Really appreciate it. Yeah, that was good.
Thank mm-hmm. you.